We were asking the question together in our series this spring on the church. What is the church? What are the benefits of the church? Why should you take the time to become a member of a local church? What is her purpose? And today we ask the question, what are the characteristics of one who not only goes to church, but indeed loves the church as she is to be loved under our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? So would you give your attention now to Brad as he comes and reads for us from Acts chapter 2. Thanks be to God. I, Blake, take you to be my holy bride, to have and to hold in sickness and health, for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part. One's love for the local church is very much like one's love for their spouse. One's love for the local church and the vows that you take as a member of the local church, they are indeed very much like the vows that you take in holy matrimony. One's love for the church is very much like the fierce sense of commitment through thick and thin, better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health that one has to their beloved best friend, their spouse, their helpmate, the lover of their life. Now, here's a question. It's very hard to love the local church. People often love their church building. So that when they go to church, they go to the church building. That's what they love. Or you might find somebody who very much loves their local church's history, the flagship church in town, the place that you go if you want to be somebody in that city. They love the church's building, or they love the church's history, but they really don't love being the local church. So if we're going to understand what it means to be the local church, what it means to love the local church, why don't you come with me to a time when there was no local church building or to a time when the church indeed had very little sense of local history. The place is Acts chapter 2. It is right after you see the great reversal of the Tower of Babel. What happened in Genesis chapter 11 was that God confused the tongues and scattered the people. And what did he do in Pentecost? He brings his people back together. 
Those speaking in foreign languages, everybody is there. And they hear it in their own mother tongue. It was amazing. 3,000 people were converted. And they came together in local communities called the local church. And if you and I are going to begin to love the local church and get over our huge hang-up, our long laundry list of reasons why we do not love the local church, then let's start where they did. The reason why you are here this morning, I hope, and the reason why some of you are here for the first time to church in many, many years, I pray, and the reason why many of you are back again after just one week, is because we center our life around the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Who Jesus, what did he do? Well, very simply, Jesus devoted himself to his people. Jesus gave himself to his people. He devoted himself to his people. Not only that, but he did not allow what he desired to come in conflict with his father's commands. He submitted and yielded his own will to his heavenly father. And perfect and spotless was he in his obedience in every way. He followed his father's commands, even when it was difficult. And he did it for you. Also, Jesus didn't just follow his father's commands. He didn't just devote himself to you. He also left the wealth of heaven. He left the comfort of his own home and he came to dwell and to give himself to poverty for you and to take on the burden of your sin on the cross so that you and I might know what it means to be forgiven. And some of you here do not know what that means because you are not in Christ. You've never placed your faith in him. And I pray that this morning you will. He devoted himself to us. Jesus Christ also yielded his desires to his Father's commands. Jesus also left the throne of heaven to come down and be with us. And Jesus also shared his very life with us. Not just part of his life. Indeed, everything he owns, he gave to us, even his own blood. And the beauty of all of this is that Jesus now gives us access to God the Father. Isn't that amazing? That you don't have to go through a priest, you don't have to go through a mediator, except the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who indwells you if you believe in him by faith, and gives you access now to the same one who flung the stars into space, and knows every hair on your head and won't let one of them fall, not even a bird out of the air without the Lord's sovereign command, and he knows every anxiety of your heart. We are here at the local church this morning because Jesus Christ has committed himself to us. And so therefore, it's good and right for us as a local church to look at what ought to characterize our life as those who love Christ's body, his church for us. So shall we look at scripture together for a moment? Let's look at Acts chapter 2. If you want to use your bulletin to follow along, please feel free to do that. You'll find it there on page 11. If you want to use your Bibles, please open up with me to Acts chapter 2. And let's look at what the text of scripture tells us is true of those who love the church. First, in Acts 2.42, it says, and they devoted themselves. Notice that they devoted themselves. They didn't just happen to run into church because they thought it was a good idea. The first principle about loving the church is that you must devote yourself to be there. Your presence 
is a way that you show your love. Any women want to say amen to that? Because when your husbands are not there, as much as they give you gifts, as much as they tell you that they love you, when they are not there, you begin to wander, right? So in the early church, the apostles devoted themselves. They didn't so much love the early church that they went, were to go to. They loved the early church that they actually were together. They planned to be together. The word in verse 42 is proskatareo, which means pros, which means to, and karateo, which means to endure. It means that they endured. They endured their planning. They endured their schedule. They devoted themselves to be there. It's the word in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus tells the disciples he's being pressed in upon him when he's in Jerusalem and he says, go, we're going to go to the Sea of Galilee and I want you to go and prepare a boat. And the word to prepare a boat is the same Greek word here. You cannot begin to love the church unless you plan to be there. I see the fire in your eyes. Yes, no, we're not talking about legalism here. We're talking about being Jesus' body as one who he himself devoted himself to his people, right? And he calls us as his people to be devoted to his body. In my estimation, in my own experience as a father, there are some very, very real and difficult objections to this that are very easy. I used to do push-ups and sit-ups every night. I know you can't tell, but I used to. Every night for years. And slowly but surely, I began to taper those off. And the other day, I made an excuse about it. And my wife, my lovely bride, happened to overhear that excuse. And she just so sweetly pinned me to a wall and said, excuses, excuses, excuses. Why don't you just do it? Why do we have such a hard time committing to the local church? There are several reasons. I'm just going to give you one. Number one, I think, is divorce. Honestly. Many of us grew up with parents who we saw the most intimate relationship in the world dissolve. And if you are children of divorce, you know what I mean. The most fundamental relationship you'd ever known begins to dissolve. And so is it any wonder why, as adults, we struggle with our commitment to the local church because we've seen very fundamental relationships already in our life completely unravel and cause so much pain. Another reason, I think, is globalization. People move now. So I don't want to really commit to the local church because, I frankly, I just don't know how long you're going to be there. And so, therefore, I hold back. I don't want to invest in you. I don't want to bloom where I'm planted. I I don't want to sink my roots in very deep because it's painful when I get uprooted. And so we're just going to skim the surface like a stone along a river. And we're just going to, we're going to be there, but we're not going to really invest. Divorce, globalization, these are very true truths, at least in my own experience. How about yours? The third, are you ready? Get ready for it. It's painful. It hurts. It hurts me. Youth sports. My inbox is filling up. I can already feel it. Youth sports. I have many friends who have gotten scholarships to great universities in this country because they stayed at the regatta. They stayed at the track meet. They stayed at the tournament till Sunday. And if you're going to be and you're going to excel in sports, it is very hard to do it in Oklahoma today without committing to the tournaments and the cycle of youth sports, which is going to necessarily take you out on Sundays. 
So question, Christian, how are you going to handle that? Do you struggle with that? Do you even, do you even struggle with it? How do you help dads train your kids? I, listen, I know youth sports provides character. Yes, it does. I played sports my entire life. I love it. I still love sports. It does provide character. But could it also be true that your lack of commitment to a local church can undo the same character you so desire to provide? Just asking the questions, the legitimate questions, right? Because it says they devoted themselves to the meeting together frequently. The last one. The last one, I think, the last obstacle is the lack of rest that we have. We are tired people. And so on Saturday night, you are exhausted. And sleeping in and fixing pancakes at 10.30 looks really nice. I mean, it's for our family, right? It's family time. It doesn't matter. Listen, it's, it's okay. I mean, they wouldn't miss us. No, we do miss you. Because there's an aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ we see with your gifts and with your presence that we would not be able to see if you weren't there. Your presence, in a very real sense, helps complete us in our worship. So, we could add to the list. We could go around the room and add to the list. It is very clear in Scripture that they devoted themselves. And one of the things that is so difficult about living in the U.S. right now is the way that persecution comes to us. A friend of mine in India said, after being in India for many, many years, coming back to the U.S., one of the things that I recognize is that in northern India, in Kashmir, where I lived, across the border in Pakistan, when they wanted to persecute you, they captured you and they chopped off your hand. White, black, hot, cold. And when you suffer, they take out an appendage. You can see it. But in America, things are just lukewarm in the suburbs. No highs, no lows. Conveniences and comfort. And they don't chop off your hand. Satan gives you a thousand tiny paper cuts so that you never see the blood until you grow weak and you expire. You die. Coming to gathered worship is very much like dieting. The New York Times today had an article about the fact that diets, just this morning, that diets do not work. Did you know that? Diets don't work. The neuroscience shows that diets do not work because what happens is that, I can't get into the details of the article, but basically what happens is that your body needs regular mindful eating rather than the roller coaster rides of diets. Salmon once a week, you know the drill, right? You've heard it all before. That is very much like worship. We come to worship like we come to a diet. We want to come to worship and say, if I can just abstain from these calories just for a period of time, my weight will drop, I will get in spiritual health, and that'll be wonderful. I'll hold off the weight. That's not true. You cannot just hold off your spiritual fat, as it were, by coming to worship for a season and then letting it go by. You have to commit to long-term, patient, mindful eating if you're going to keep your weight down physically. In the same way, it's that way spiritually. You are teaching your children things about the nature of commitment and dependence that you can teach them in no other institution in history. 
And therefore, your devotion to be at worship matters. It's not that your grandparents are legalistic. It's that they perhaps know, an older generation knows what it means to commit to be together. Do you? They were devoted. They devoted themselves. Your presence is a mark of your love for the church. That's not all. What else does it say? It says they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. Didache in Greek, it's the word for doctrine. Oh, oh, we love this word doctrine so much because there are the people who say doctrine is everything. Doctrine is everything. And if you don't line up with me, some might say, on all of these points, don't you know how smart I am? Don't you know the doctrine that I know? Oh, let me tell you about the podcast and the books I've read. If you don't agree with me on these issues, then we cannot have fellowship. Those are the doctrinalists on one hand. Those are the people who have this amazing knowledge. Yes, it's beautiful and good. But they want everybody to line up with them perfectly. And on the other hand, there are those, perhaps more than the majority around Tulsa, who say, listen, doctrine, doctrine, it's love unites, doctrine divides. Let's not really talk about doctrine. The problem with that is that that itself is a doctrine. It is impossible to say doctrine doesn't matter because you hold to a very fierce doctrine, even if it's tolerance. That becomes your doctrine. And so you have people who either are doctrinalists, must completely agree with me on these issues, and you have the emotionalists, doctrine doesn't matter, let's just be friends. What the gospel calls us to, actually, is to say we center our lives on the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. Saved by faith, that's why we are Protestants. Committed to his finished work. And, therefore, the demonstration of that is that we love those who differ from us. And we hold primary issues primary and secondary issues secondary. That's why there are many people in this church, just for example, just for example, who, because Oklahoma, because the West was primarily founded first by Baptists and then Methodists, there is a vast majority of people who, when they come to Trinity, they love the church, but they don't understand infant baptism. They don't, they don't get it. That is okay. It is okay. Because you do not have to believe in the specificity of the Westminster Confession of Faith in order to be a member of our church. You just have to believe in Jesus' finished work for you. There are many people in this room who do not understand yet the doctrine of infant baptism. That is fine. Totally fine. The only ones who must commit to it are the officers of your church. Now, we'll still teach it because we believe that it's biblical. But it is okay if you do not agree with it. There are primary issues which must remain primary, and there are secondary issues which can be secondary. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is what it means to maintain a gospel worldview. A worldview is the comprehensive set of beliefs that you believe about stuff, about things, everything. And these men and women dedicated, they devoted themselves, they endured for the apostles' teaching. And it began to shape the whole of their life. That's why they went day after day in the early days of the church, because they were having their worldviews so radically reshaped and reformed by the gospel that they began to see everything differently in light of Jesus' finished work. Your worldview matters to you because you don't even see it. It's the lens through which you see everything else in the world. 
And unless you are committed to being in Christ's local church, to receiving the teaching of Scripture, to reshape and remold and challenge that worldview in light of Jesus' work for you, then you will not be growing spiritually. Your presence, your growth, and your worldview being formed around the work of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, it says they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Koinonia, the word for fellowship. The original idea of hospitality, when we think of that word today, the original idea of that word did not just mean the hospitality industry, did not just mean restaurants, did not mean this kind of glorious entertaining that we think of when we think about hospitality today. It means that you unlocked your door and you invited friends in and you let them be in your home. It says in the text that they were together, they had things in common. It says that they began to break bread. Where? In their homes. They attended the temple Yes, it says in verse 46, and they broke bread in their home. The Lord has given you your home to share. It provides shelter for your family, but it is also there to share with others who need it. Hospitality has always been a mark of one who walks in communion with the Lord Jesus. It was that way with Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham extended hospitality to strangers who ended up being God himself and his angels. It was that way in Luke when Jesus speaks of extending hospitality not only to your friends and your brothers and your relatives or to your rich neighbors, but also Luke 14, 12, and 13, to the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. In Romans 12, 13, Paul commands that Christians be hospitable. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1, hospitality is one of the musts as leaders of the church, the elders. Henry Nouwen said that if there is any concept worth restoring to its original depth and evocative potential, it is the concept of hospitality. They dedicated themselves to meet together under the apostles' teaching, and they met together even in their homes. Do you love the church? If you love the church, you will invite other people in. And the power to do that is not just mere willpower. The power to do that is only when you see that Jesus Christ himself left the comfort and convenience of his own home to come and to dwell with you to give himself to you, to open himself up to such as you were. In Luke 5, the Pharisees saw Jesus' hospitality as a scandal. They went to the, Jesus went to, the, uh, to Levi's house. He had dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And they said, about your Lord, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Do you invite people into your home? Mm, it is a way to love the church. There are barriers, just like there are barriers to presence uh, at worship, there are certainly barriers to opening your home to people, right? They broke bread in their homes. Some people will say, my home is a wreck. Okay. It's lived in. 
I can't have people over because it's dirty. Well, some, some of us, listen, some of us are just OCD. Or that really bugs us, and that's okay. It's okay. That's okay. It can, it, it's, it's a legitimate reason. It can bug you. But we just want you to know that it's probably more something you're thinking about than people coming into your house. People I've noticed in Owasso who come over to our house, they're just shocked that they are invited over. They're not noticing the toys in the corner of the room. They're not noticing the dust. They're not noticing that stuff. It's right and good to show respect to your guests by picking up a little bit. Yes, you don't want it to be trashed out. But to think that you have to minesweep your entire house for every cobweb is just not practical. They'll be in shock that you invited them over in the front. It'd be wonderful. You'll have a great time. My home is a wreck. Some people say, well, I simply don't, just don't have the time. There's a list of musts in my life, paying bills, going to work, caring for my children. And there's a list of mites. And having people to my house is a mite. Well, it wasn't for the early church. They called people to their house. And might you move, might you move, having people from your, into your home from the mite category into the must category? It's a way to love the local church. Why? Because you're extending the hospitality of the Lord himself to other people. Not just within our fellowship, but certainly to your neighbors. Your neighbors see your invitation to your homes and they go, wait a minute, that's really, like, they are not afraid to have me inside their four walls. That's amazing. That's really great. There's a leader in our town who had been here for several months in, uh, in their position. And everybody knew this person. And Lord and I decided to have their family over to our house for dinner. And the first thing they said to us was, thank you for having us over for dinner. Nobody's ever invited us to eat at their house. One of the most powerful ways you can be the hands and feet of Jesus in the suburbs is by inviting people over. Some people will say, well, listen, I can't afford it. And that, yes, that is a realistic expectation. It is. Potlucks are wonderful. And spaghetti and meatballs are not always hard on the budget. Sometimes they are. But even if they were, just having them over for a glass of water, just for, an just for a conversation together, that's a place to start. Jean Venet, who contemplates how we might make our places hospitable in the future says in years to come we are going to need many small communities which will welcome lost and lonely people offering them a new form of family and a sense of belonging in the past christians who wanted to follow jesus opened hospitals and schools now there are so many of these that christians must commit themselves to the new community of welcome to live with people who have no other family and to show them that they are loved and can grow to greater freedom and that they in turn can give love and give life to others by welcoming them into their houses one of the marks of your love for the church after the lord's demonstration of his love for us is your presence in worship is your commitment to have your worldview shaped by the finished work of Jesus? Is your fellowship with believers outside of worship in your homes? Fourthly, it says they are selling their possessions, verse 45, and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The regular church regularly, the early church regularly sold their possessions to give to those who had need. 
This is very much like what just happened yesterday with our youth. Our youth, was, they're a tremendous example to us of this. They had a rummage sale to help pay for their need for camp. And so they held it at Trinity House, and they sold over $700 worth of stuff. It's beautiful. And they sold your stuff. You brought it to them. It's so wonderful. Like, this sermon is not meant to, like, beat you up. It's meant to say thank you, too. Because it was beautiful. You sold, like, you did exactly what Acts 2.45 says to do in this year and time. That's amazing. There are two extremes when it comes to selling our stuff. There are some who are communalists, which say, oh, the early church sold everything that they owned. Well, let's just sell everything for Jesus, and let's give it to the church. Well, no, that's not what Scripture actually teaches. On the other hand, there are those who hoard it. I don't really use it. I haven't used it in five years, but, you know, I might one, I might one day, so let's hang on to it a few years more. There are communalists, and there are hoarders, and yes, they're even in this room. Dare I say, there may be one of those even in my own family. Lauren is definitely um, one who wants to give stuff away. I tend to want to keep it. But the gospel, the scripture, teaches us that there is private property. It is a biblical idea. Yes, it is yours. Scripture nowhere teaches that private property is wrong. It assumes that there's private property because it says in the very text that they were in their homes. They were sharing their stuff. They were selling their stuff. Later in Acts chapter 5, you have people who are selling land that they own. Jesus assumes you have private property all throughout Scripture. But yet, our property is not only private, is it? It is to be shared when people have need. What do you do with your stuff? Now, nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture are we obligated to give up our possessions. Please hear me very carefully. Nowhere in Scripture are we obligated to give up our possessions. But giving is assumed to be part of the Christian life. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at earlier this year, when you give, not if you give. In one of Paul's letters to a local church, he could, not make, he could make this very freeing assertion. Each man, 2 Corinthians 9, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. There it is, no obligation. For God loves a cheerful giver. And earlier when he provides the reasons to give, the power, the motivation to give, the rationale, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. These are the two truths, the guardrails, to guide our own giving in the local church. You should be under no obligation to give. You should be able to give freely and joyfully. But you are to give as one who has been given everything from Jesus who became poor, so that you might be rich and clothed in his own righteousness. You will never hear this church tell you to add a zero to a tithe check or that you should give a certain percentage. But dare we say that if the Old Testament under the obligation of the law were commanded to give a tenth of all they own and yet we have so many more glorious riches in Jesus Christ today, wouldn't it just logically make sense that you would be even more generous than that? A mark of your love for the church is 
that you give. Many of us give, I'm going to stay on it just for a second and let you marinate in this idea. Many of us give online, which means that we consistently give at worship. We just give online. When the offering plate is passed in just a minute, some of you will be shocked to see how little is actually in it. It's because most people here give online through the website. And we do that and we commend it to you because it is a way for you over time to be actually more generous and to be more regular in your giving. But while you may give at worship, the cost to giving online is that you actually don't worship in your giving. You may give everywhere. It may be automated for you to give, but you don't actually worship. Your children don't see that check. They have no idea what you give. Your wife may not know what you give. Your husband may not know what you give. And so I just want to help call you to a family conversation about what you give. It's a beautiful thing to talk about. Convicting, hard, yes. But that's what, it, that's what part of being a family is. They gave. It is a sign of your love for Christ's body, his bride. And the motivation of it is not this sense of obligation. It is a joyful, triumphant sense of joy and duty because everything that Christ has given to you, oh, he's given to you freely. And he has covered you in his righteousness. And we give back to him and worship for all that he has given to us. Your presence your dedication to the teaching of God's word, shaping and forming your worldview, your fellowship, the way that you open up your homes and hospitality, the way that you give your stuff, your possessions, your money. These are all marks of how well you love the local church. The last one, it says, is that they prayed and they praised God for what he was doing in their midst. It says, with glad and generous hearts, they received food and praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Jesus has given you access to the Father through his finished work for you. It was Jesus and Jesus alone who devoted himself to you. Yes, he loved you enough to come and die on the cross. Not the person to your right or to, your, to you. He yielded his own opinions to his Father's commands. It shaped and formed him. He grew in wisdom. He was fully human like we did, yet he was without sin. Jesus fellowshiped. He ate with sinners. He fellowshiped with those that were different. And the joy of hospitality in the church means that it displays that there was a level playing field. White or black, rich or poor, doesn't matter what size of the tracks you grew up on or where you now live. There is a level playing field in Christ's church. That's another reason why it's so important to be hospitable to your brothers and sisters. And Jesus gave himself, his stuff, to the point of shedding his own blood for you. All of that so that you could have access to the one who loves you more than you could ever imagine. Presence. Devotion. Worldview was shaped under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostles' teaching. Hospitality fellowship. They sold their possessions with glad and generous hearts. Praise and access to the Lord himself. Prayer. These are the five marks of your love for the church. How are we doing? Where are you struggling in these five areas? Allow the Lord himself who loves you 
to come alongside you and remind you that he covers you in his righteousness if you're in him. And he does not want you to feel guilty about not doing these things, but he wants, to he wants you to feel his warm embrace to say, oh yes, love, if you love me, you will love my body. You will love the local church. Let's do that as a church, shall we? It's a beautiful thing to love the church because it's a demonstration of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who has given himself completely to you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to love you so much that we love your local church, your bride, your body. Help us, Father, to love her appropriately and well by our presence, by our learning, by our fellowship, by our generosity, and by our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.